Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. We've got a very special episode for you tonight, um, kind of picking up with a retrospective of some of the severe weather events that happened last week. And we actually talked about in last week's episode, so we're going to uh, jump in on that. Uh, Before we get started, though, we've got to bring in my co-host, Sam Bradley, who has helped uh, gather all this together for a special early episode this week. Hey, Sam. Hey, Jamie. Yes, it's been... uh... This storm was weird in so many ways. We were just talking about the fact that Denver got all the snow and we got nothing. But, you know, that pales in comparison to what happened when it kept going. A few a few factoids on that. And you know, we're going to talk to jo- Dr. Joe on the scene in, in uh, Kentucky and then, of course, to our weather people, which we'll get to in a minute. But this has got to be, and, and they can verify this, uh, the most devastating tornado event probably in U.S. history. And it was actually 30 tornadoes that appeared between Friday and Saturday, went through five states, uh, Kentucky, Illinois, Tennessee, Missouri, and Arkansas. And we've probably all heard about the fact that, that one of them tracked. It was. They're saying at least an F3. They're still investigating whether that could be a four or five, but went 200 miles and did all that devastation. So it it destroyed about 1,000 properties, uh, caused a train derailment, 17,000 homes and businesses are still without power. Uh, Mayfield, as I understand it, it's going to take them a really long time to get power back up. And maybe Joe can expand on this, but uh, there's one situation that 74 people were killed, including 12 children. But they still have over 100 people missing, and that's what Joe's working on. Um, AccuWeather said that the damages and economic losses could be about $18 billion, which will make it the costliest event in U.S. history. So those are just a few facts um, changing always. It's a dynamic event. But let's go right to Joe. He, he left like the next morning to go out to the, the worst of it. So, Joe? How are things going out there? Uh, well, hi, everybody. Uh, going actually well, uh, <laughs> you know, as these things go. Um, we have been working in uh, western Kentucky along probably 150 miles of tornado track. Um, big damage in Mayfield, as you mentioned, including a uh, uh, a candle factory, which was completely destroyed with a uh, pretty significant loss of life. Um, and uh, then tracking literally right through the center of uh, downtown, a very historic uh, part of the city with lots of big, beautiful churches and uh, old homes that were 100 years old and all that kind of stuff. Pretty substantial damage there as well. Uh, and then, um, obviously, this is a, a rural part of Kentucky, so a lot of uh, farm and forest area and all that sort of stuff. But we've seen pretty substantial damage in uh, Dawson Springs, uh, some near Bowling Green, and uh, uh, beyond. So, um, you know, <laughs> we're covering a lot of territory, but we're making uh, making good progress. Uh, wrapping up activities actually fairly quickly, uh, and um, we hope to be done with the search and rescue component uh, soon, end of the week, we hope. So what have, have you found many folks? I know that Ohio was out there in Indiana. I don't know who else, as far uh, as you, SARS. Yes. 
yeah, we've had four task forces uh, on scene. Um, it's been um, currently it's been a couple of days since any live finds, um, at, at least in the areas that I've been working in. Um, but uh, you know things continue, so uh, we're, we're we're hopeful. Uh, the weather's holding out in our favor, so we keep our fingers crossed that that'll continue to keep our window open for a little longer. Well, and there's always those miracles that seem to happen, you know, when when you think there's could be nobody left alive, and then somebody is just in a in a good good spot where they're not crushed and just waiting for rescue. So hopefully we'll. We'll hear a little more about that. I'm going to bounce over to Becky because she made a comment that this actually was not the worst tornado outbreak. Um, you want to comment on that, Beck? Yeah. Okay. So for context, um, as of now, we're looking with filtered reports at 61 tornadoes, 280 wind reports. Um, I believe the death toll stands at 74, although there's still some, uh, I think, around 100 that are confirmed, that are that are missing, so have not been confirmed. Uh, we're going to go back to 2011 to the super out, super outbreak, and granted, this lasted from April 25th through the 28th, so it was a several-day outbreak, whereas this one was only a day, thankfully. Um, but that had 360 confirmed tornadoes and 324 fatalities from tornadoes, um, and I believe that one is the record for a continuous outbreak. And that was in 2011 across the south. That was where there's the Tuscaloosa tornado, um, just a number of prolific tornadoes in Alabama. And then you can go back to the 1974 super outbreak, which is the second largest um, on record for 48 confirmed tornadoes and 319 fatalities. Um, so I really, I think this goes to show the, the increase Dan has a comment, but I'll, I can see that, that. <laughs> he's going um, crazy over here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, warning time has obviously increased significantly since 1974. 2011 was a, an extremely prolific, horrific event, as was last Friday. Um, and I think, Dan, I'll let Dan comment on the it being the worst for December, because that's what's really the unusual part of this. Yeah. OK, Dan. <laughs> it's all you. Yeah, I think Becky. Yeah, I, I think Becky said it well, and you know this doesn't diminish this outbreak at all e- either, right? I mean, this is this was significant and unfortunately very tragic. And I think the thing that struck me most was the time of year this is, right? I mean, I, I looked at the weather map on Friday morning, and I thought it was late March or early April. If you had just given me the weather map, that's the time of year I would have told you it was. I never, never would have put mid December on that weather map if I didn't have a date on it. Um, and on average, I think the typical number of tornadoes in December in an average year is 24. So tornadoes in December happen. They happen usually every year. It's just the fact that we had way more than the average for the month on one day. Um, and there were numerous ones that were EF2 or EF3 or higher. We'll see when they do all the damage surveys, what they end up finding. But that's what really struck me the most was the fact that I, I think it's probably safe to say this was the worst December outbreak of tornadoes in recorded history in the U.S. Oh, scary. Jamie, you got a question and a comment. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that you mentioned, and I think it it bears um, talking about, is um, I've seen several of the official reports from governors and and, um, emergency managers talking about 
the fact that the early warning systems did help with this event. Um, I uh, know the Gov- Governor Hutchinson of um, Arkansas made a comment that that nursing home that had a fatality could have been much worse, but they got a 20-minute warning or able to get most of the residents into the hallway away from the windows. Um, and they, they credited that warning, early warning system for helping save lives there. So I, I wonder, Joe, if you heard anything from anyone about early warning system and, and did that have an impact for Mayfield? Because they did get some advanced warning that the tornado was on the way. Uh, not, not directly, Jamie. I don't, I don't have any direct knowledge of that. I know we did have some conversations with, uh, some of the folks, uh, uh, associated with the, uh, the candle factory that was hit. Uh, and it, it's, it was my understanding from that conversation that, uh, you know, folks in that factory were, um, you know, being moved to safe areas and, uh, you know, doing doing whatever their plan was in there uh, as uh, before this thing hit. So uh, I, I, I don't know any details beyond that, though. You know, Jamie, one thing I heard about the nursing home was they had eight residents that they moved out of one of the wings because there was construction taking place and that entire wing was leveled. So if you want to say divine intervention, that <laughs> it, it, it was a great coincidence. But, but, Dan, it's true that it was that moist, warm air that formed the thunderstorms that spawned the tornadoes, correct? In fact, they were saying the, the warmth itself was at record-breaking levels, and Memphis, in fact, was up to 80 degrees. So that kind of was the high point. Yeah, definitely, Sam. I think the I mean, you, you, you have to have warm, moist air. That's one of the four sort of ingredients for thunder, for severe thunderstorms. And you have to have warm, moist air at the surface. You also then have to have colder, drier air aloft, and that creates an unstable atmosphere, which can lead to rising air. You need to have some sort of trigger to be able to get thunderstorms to form. In this case, we had, had an approaching cold front. That was the trigger. Uh, you have to have wind speed, uh, sorry, uh, wind shear, which is the change of wind direction or speed with height in the atmosphere. And you combine those together and you have to have the right combination um, and you can get severe thunderstorms, which some of which then produce tornadoes. And this time of year, what's usually missing is the warm, moist air at the surface. Um, you usually have a fair amount of wind shear in December. You have a lot of uh, wind energy in the atmosphere as you head into the winter and the uh, spring months is why spring is the peak of this um, severe weather usually. But in this case, we had record warmth. As you mentioned, the Gulf of Mexico is anywhere from three to six or seven degrees Fahrenheit above normal. So you had a very moist, warm air mass at the surface that came northward across the Tennessee and Mississippi valleys. And it was just that right combination, um, with the storm that was headed off to the, that storm that was moving off to the North. You pulled that warm air northward. You had wind shear combined with that. And the conditions were just right to be able to produce this really tragic outbreak. Kind of like the perfect storm, huh? So it seems. Um, Kyle, I, I have to divert to Colorado here for a minute because I guess we're going to take another hit starting tomorrow. You got a bunch of snow out of this up on the high country, but we got more coming, right? 
Absolutely, Sam. Uh, definitely looking to be a more active weather pattern uh, picking back up here for the western part of the United States. So hopefully we can get some more moisture on the ground to both replenish those mountain reservoirs and uh, definitely get those uh, ski resorts fully buffed out and, and opened up. But yeah, it truly was incredible watching this uh, last storm roll through Colorado and then uh, that low pressure center develop in the lee side or the east side of the rocky mountains there and as it tracked off to the north and to the east you know that cold front that extended south from it uh you know helped to provide that lifting mechanism to to spawn the uh, tornadoes across the south and the midwest so we're supposed to get some pretty high winds out here in the front range tomorrow correct that's right. Uh, it's going to be a pretty impressive wind event uh, for much of the state of Colorado, uh, most notably the front range of Colorado, right, with those uh, when those winds come over the mountains. And uh, as that air descends on the on the leeward side, in this case, winds blowing from west to east, as that air uh, descends, it, uh, it accelerates and it's uh, going to uh, cause some uh, pretty widespread uh, wind damage we're expecting. Uh, there on the front range, and uh, hopefully not too many uh, Christmas decorations taking flight. Oh my God, they may end up in you know Missouri. I don't know, that's pretty scary. Ah, oh, thank you, Dan. We're good, but if you were listened last week, we had Dan Zayner on, who was telling us about going to this conference in New Orleans, and uh, he's been eating beignets for us, so that that was very sweet. We'll get to Dan in just a second, but. The other, Dan, uh, did you say there's some other weather coming that we need to know about? Well, in terms of uh, severe thunderstorm potential, Kyle did a really good job there describing the sort of widespread wind potential in this storm for tomorrow, which is Wednesday, the 15th of December here. And we do have to be concerned about a small area where there could be damaging winds from thunderstorms, as well as a tornado potential. This is not the same area as was hit uh, last week. This would be basically far eastern Nebraska, far west, or, uh, most of Iowa, especially western Iowa and southern Minnesota, where they just received a foot and a half of snow last week. Uh, this area could experience some really dramatic weather on, on, on Wednesday evening with uh, a brief warm-up temperatures into the 60s with high winds potentially severe thunderstorms, and then a rapid cool down with temperatures falling into the 20s tomorrow night or Wednesday night. I think our forecast right now for Minneapolis is um, a severe thunderstorm in the evening, followed by a snow shower late. Watch for a rapid freeze up. So that's a pretty wild evening of weather. So oh it's a pretty, pretty volatile storm system moving through here, and it's going to bring uh, some snow to northern Minnesota. But the concern really, as Kyle mentioned, is the damaging winds across a large area of the plains and the, um, the four corners and front range, and then maybe even up into the Midwest as well. Is there not such a thing as normal weather anymore? <laughs> yeah, we've had some quieter stretches in the, the fall, but uh, the last uh, couple of weeks have not been, that's for sure. Oh, certainly. Well, Dan Z, uh, when we last talked to you, you were on your way to New Orleans, and uh, we'd love to hear what's going on there. You made a couple comments on the sidebar here in terms of what your people down there were doing in terms of the storm. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, good, good to be with you guys. Um, and it, it was interesting. I hadn't even heard about the storms because I kind of was off, off the uh, communications grid while I was driving um on saturday on the way down here but i drove through bowling green kentucky i was like wow there's a lot of trees down 
<laughs> Bingo. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, really big trees. Like, Whoa, something must have happened. And I, I, I got to uh, my cousin's place in, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And my wife was like, did you hear about the tornadoes that hit in Kentucky? I'm like, oh, that's what that was. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was uh, pretty interesting um, to have. is not normal and the drove past the corvette factory and the sign out front the really big sign was bent over at a pretty severe angle wow that must have that was a pretty strong window done that it, um, it's hard to and, believe you'd be that yeah. clueless dan <laughs> yeah yeah well the, the pieces started to come together as, as, as we mentioned i got about three brain cells left with uh <laughs> driving that long and and having young kids at home so so sometimes it takes me a little while to catch on but um yeah, I've, I've mentioned to uh, my colleague joe Wortman from the university of washington who's uh one of the principal investigators for the rapid facility um as we were at our, our booth this week at, at uh, agu the american geophysical union fall meeting and he's like oh we should have sent you some equipment you could have <laughs> you could have deployed with uh with uh, uh our, our team that we had in kentucky on the way down but yeah, they're doing a lot of work out there with um, the uh, the STEER group, the Structural Extreme Events Reconnaissance uh, team that's funded by by the NSF, and uh, just using all all of the equipment they've got at their their disposal. Um, but first, just because of the sheer size of this outbreak and the length of the track, especially that that longest one, that uh, they're still trying to determine exactly how long it was, but on the order of couple hundred miles of the last time I checked, but um, they're they're using fixed wing UAVs to be able to have enough time in the air to, to survey a large area, um, among other things. So, yeah, it's it's been a, a pretty interesting time for uh, for the steer crew and for the rapid sending their their some of their team and their equipment out there. Well, we're glad they're out there. Jamie, you had a question. Yeah, Dan, while we're talking about the STEER team, do you want to just give us a quick review of what it is they do and how they are brought in on these severe weather events to examine um, structural damage? Yeah, so STEER is one of many, we call them the, the EERs. There's a few different uh, few different ones, uh, but they're all funded by the same mechanism through the National Science Foundation for Extreme Events Reconnaissance. And so STEER is the structural one. And, and their job is to basically look at how structures fare in various uh, extreme weather events. So hurricanes, uh, tornadoes, uh, tsunami, coastal storm surge, and also electromagnetic uh, events. So all sorts of things. And they go as soon as possible after the event to capture that really perishable data because rightfully so, these communities want to clean up as soon as possible and, and get back to, to normal life. And so... These guys got to get on the ground before that cleanup starts. And along with them, um, it is uh, in coordination with uh, our partner in, in NARI, the Converge Center, which is at the University of Colorado Boulder. And their charge is to bring together these engineering teams with, they want to, uh, as you guys were talking, they, they want to see like what was happening when they got the, this community got the uh, the tornado warning. How long did they have to respond? What did they do? Where did they go? What preparations were already in place or or not? Uh, things like that. And so 
uh, is very important piece of what NERI does and the, the Converge Center allows us to, to do is uh, bring together engineers and social scientists uh, who you know normally don't hang out together, <laughs> um, but to get a more full picture of, of what happened during these extreme events. Well, Joe's out there. Um, Joe, what did that candle factory look like? I've seen some of the pictures, but it's just mind-boggling. Like it, it, I'm sure it wasn't easy to to try and get in there to look for people, right? Uh, no, it was not, Sam. It, it was, uh, you know, one giant pile of debris. Uh, it, it was in an area where there was a, a large uh, uh, tractor sales and service place uh, with lots of large farm equipment, you know, nearby. Uh, um including some, you know, huge combines, which were blown a few hundred yards. So if you can imagine, I'm, I'm sure a combine probably yeah. weighs 30 or 40,000 pounds, but it was, you know, blown away with these. And, um, uh, you know, a few other buildings uh, in the area, including a, a train that was derailed there as well, that was part of a, 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 you know, grain bin operation or something like that. At least it looked like to me. I, I didn't actually see too much of that. but. Um, you know, just a, a, a giant um, thrashing of all things, uh, both man-made and natural, along that pathway. Well, Dan, you know, what we could see from here, and I'm certainly no expert in this area, but you could see where the roof came off and the entire support section for the roof was down on top of the debris. Is that supposed to happen? <laughs> no. Yeah. So Joe and I were having a little sidebar in our booth today of like, how you know, part of what Steer does and when what he and his colleagues do is look at why structures fail um, in these in these particular events. Because when you think about a, a they call it a large volume building like the Amazon warehouse or like the candle factory, large volume of, of air in the pressurizable volume inside those buildings, they're meant to take as a certain structural load by the building code, you know, to be able to just be there under normal conditions. And then they're supposed to be able to take a certain amount of wind load from the outside. That's what they're designed to do according to the building codes. And what Joe was talking about is, and they haven't confirmed this yet, so we'll say we're theorizing a bit, is <clears throat> that of the point where the uh, cross members and in and the rafters and the columns, all those connection points with the roof. Um, at that point, they were subject to some sort of dynamic load. There was an a up and down force that was, you know, some sort of oscillation, some, you know, back and forth of the either uh, the building was flexing underneath the wind load some way, or maybe there was a, a door or a window that got uh, penetrated by a debris or blown off in some other way, and that was driving pressure inside to be different than the pressure outside, and the building was was vibrating in a way that it wasn't designed to withstand, and that's what caused the failure. The combination of a structural load, a wind load from the outside, and this this dynamic oscillation that it wasn't designed to withstand, snapping those connections and allowing the roof uh, you know envelope to be uh, destroyed along with the rest of the building. But that's part of what Steer is there to investigate to see if those those theories uh, hold any water with uh, what's reality on the ground. 
Well, and the hope would be figure it out and see if there's a way to prevent that kind of thing. The next yeah, time. exactly. And so that's what, what Neary does is we, we, we bring the data from the field and say, oh, wow, that's, that's an interesting failure mode that we haven't seen before. Let's, let's build a test specimen in the lab at uh, maybe Florida International University, which has a really large open jet wind tunnel where we can destroy all sorts of stuff in a safe way and test these large volume buildings. We, you know, let's build a lot of them, change, the, change some variables in different series of, of tests so that we can nail down really what was that failure mode and then be able to uh, advise uh, the people who write the the building codes for for wind loads and and see if uh, you know ten years down the road we can get the building code updated to incorporate uh, those those new loading scenarios. Joe and then Jamie. <laughs> I see lots of exclamation points and question marks in the chat. <laughs> <laughs> well, you always entice questions, Dan. <laughs> So, Dan, this was a fascinating explanation, and and just to sort of send that point home in a way that might make sense to more people, um, one of the fire stations here was damaged pretty severely, and the firefighters who were there uh, said that they all felt their ears pop with uh, as if they were on a flight due to these wow. substantial changes that occurred uh, just before their building started coming apart. Wow. Well, I'll have to tell Joe that he was right then. <laughs> I yeah. had an idea that it might have, it, and and again, this is this was just a, a theory of. So you ever take a soda bottle when it's empty and blow across the top and and you know make a fun little noise. So that that effect is called a Helmholtz resonator. So you got fast air going across an opening. And it's trying to push down on the air inside of the bottle and squeeze it. And it can do a certain point, but then it'll rebound. And it rebounds over and over and over and over again. And it vibrates at a frequency that's audible to humans. And I wonder if for some of those buildings, you get that kind of effect. Like if you got some uh, air leakage from the building or if there's a, a window or a door that's that's blown open, that you get that resonator effect and that uh, oscillation over time and change of pressure really, really fast stresses the the joints in the building structure in ways they weren't meant to, and and leads to part of the failure. That's really uh, really interesting, Joe. That you would get that feedback. The other Dan has a comment. Yo, Dan. Yeah, I was gonna. Yeah, I was just gonna follow up on the um, the. Uh, ears popping piece. Yeah. I mean, the pressure in, inside of tornadoes is usually significantly lower than, you know, the, the atmosphere pressure than it is around it. So, um, because you're, you're, you're taking air obviously, and you're basically evacuating it up into the atmosphere. So you're, you're lowering the pressure at that point. So it can be significantly lower. Um, so you have a rapid change in pressure, which is the reason for the ears popping of people who are near or unfortunately in a tornado. I was going to ask Dan too, if there's certain or sort of like what types of construction or is it basically just based on the building code or are there certain types of buildings that are better to be in or worse to be in in these types of events um, <clears throat> based on like the roof structure and the roof um, architecture and and uh, design yeah there's a there's a lot of variables i'll give you the good engineering answer it depends <laughs> uh you know it depends on when was the structure constructed and what was the building code at the time and did they follow it how has it been maintained since then? 
um, you know, all, all of these types of factors uh, come in, come into play. And so that's, uh, you know, unfortunately it gets to be a pretty complex problem really fast. Um, but typically you can, you can say, okay, there's, there's a spectrum of what's better to be in than others. Um, you know, most of, most of the United States, our construction is a lot better than let's say cinder block construction that you'd find in Haiti. I mean, there's kind of some, a little bit of black and white there, but it's a mostly gray, mostly gray area. That is where uh, my colleagues and I play in. It's that it, it kind of depends on a lot of different things. I can imagine. Dan, the Amazon warehouse, um, two sides of it collapsed and the roof caved in, but it looked like, oh, you could see it was like tent poles. I mean, it gave me the impression, and again, because I'm not an expert, that that couldn't possibly have been very sturdy. Is that, I don't know, I don't know much about that, but it just looked wrong. <laughs> Yeah, I, I haven't seen it myself, so I, I can't really speak to it. But, uh, you know, with a lot of buildings like that, I mean, we were in a convention center today that's constructed in a similar way to a lot of very large buildings like that, where they're trying to prioritize the amount of volume they can get in that building. And that means removing as much structure as possible so that it's not in the way of all the stacks of stuff you want to put in there. Um, and so it's it's optimized for a different uh, uh different variable that you want rather than, hey, let's make this as as hardened against the tornado as we can. And of course, no one was expecting that in December, certainly. Uh, Jamie, you have a question. Yeah. yeah, and the question I have is is something that Becky mentioned in an email earlier when we were planning this episode. Um, was about the Amazon warehouse and other similar structures. You know, it, it's it. I wonder if it makes sense to have, uh, you know, a a separate code for a hardened structure within those structures where there is a safe place to go to that is hardened within within the uh, the large volume building um, that provides a safe place when we mm. do have. 15, 20 minutes of early warning time to get everybody into the, the safe room. Um, just something that I wonder if that's ever been considered because obviously these large volume buildings are going to have weak points um, just because of the way their structures are made. Yeah, you know, I would hazard a guess as to say there probably is something like that, but um, without, a, without too much intimate knowledge of, of building codes myself, I couldn't really speak to it. But I'm scanning. I'm scanning our our uh, latest messages from Steers. See if anybody has uh, has talked about something like that. Not seeing anything, but that is a really good question. Uh, Becky, you made a good comment about uh, firefighters. You want to talk about that for a second? Oh, that was Kyle's comment. I'm the next one. <laughs> oh, that was Kyle. Oh, sorry. I, you, they're going too fast. All right, Kyle, you're the one that made that comment. Yes, and right, kind of along the lines with Joe, right? We're I love that we're getting technical on the engineering side of things, right? But for our responder community, right? Think of right as as you know our our firefighter friends, right? Why they don't like um, you know going onto you know buildings and fighting fires in buildings that have very large span roofs and walking on those, right? Think how uh, quickly those can those can fail as opposed to roofs with you know a little bit of a, a shorter span, and additionally. 
right? That's why historically places like, say, in, in schools, right, we don't recommend that students shelter in a gymnasium during a, a high wind or severe weather event, right? We put them in right, more interior rooms that have more walls between them and the outside or other identified areas uh, with professional engineering consultation, right, that that are identified as, as being uh, safer areas than those with those large span roofs. So just to kind of yeah. kind of bring this home and right, this is the, what we've been preaching for years, what we've heard for years, and uh, we saw it ring true again. Wow. So yeah. I'll, I'll retract my earlier statement of saying there wasn't anything in this this steer uh, messages about about the building code differences because I actually found one. Um, so uh, Ian Robinson, Stephanie Pillington, if you ever listen to this, thank you. You guys are my heroes. Um, they were looking at the the IBC, the International Building Code definitions, and that a, a structure like the Amazon warehouse could fall under something either factory or mercantile. And there's different subcategories of that building code based on what's stored or made or packaged there. So there's all sorts of nuances and differences in the code based on, you know, what actually is there versus what the person or the company that uh, that built the building declared that was there when they were building it, and and there may be uh, a wide variety uh, of of things depending on how truthful those, the people were on their uh, you know code inspections and things, and so there's different risk categories for even within that same larger category of of both large volume structures. Becky, I was my next question had to do with OSHA, and it looks like you've answered some of that. You want to tell us about what you found? Yes, this was from um, some research documents that I, I looked at a couple of years ago. And essentially, the summary is that OSHA does require all organizations have an emergency action plan. Um, any more than 10, than 10 staff members it must outline procedures for evacuation, for reporting emergencies. However, OSHA does not offer specific standards, standards related to the definition of a tornado shelter or refuge. It offers guidelines, um, but there are not, it's not actually specified that your tornado shelter or place of refuge must be to this standard. Um, I don't know if that exists elsewhere. I'm sure there are a lot of recommendations, but it does not appear that literally the Occupational Safety and Health Administration requires that, which probably needs to change. Uh, Jamie, you have a weather question. Yeah, and I'm not sure who's best, best to answer this, but, um, you know, one of the things that I looked at with this storm system and, and all of the, the tornadoes, um, we were talking a little earlier about early warning systems and things like that. What's the chatter like in the weather community on how they did from an early warning system standpoint for the local weather reports and and warnings to communities in the path of this storm has anybody heard anything from the weather community i, I mean i think start unless or do you want to go becky I, i'll just briefly i'd say generally it sure. seems like this was pretty successful um but dan you can probably speak to the specifics yeah, I agree with that assessment. Everything I have heard is that uh, there's numerous anecdotes as well as things that we have verified from our standpoint and heard from the National Weather Service about what they verified is that there was significant lead time on uh, the majority of the tornadoes that occurred on Friday and Friday night. 
um, which is especially important in these uh, nocturnal events where lead time is important because people need to, you know, they're not, they're, they're, they're sleeping in many cases. Um, so I think the early warning was, was definitely there. Um, unfortunately, there's sometimes there's not a lot you can do depending on what type of structure you're in or what the situation is. So I think that was a part of the system that, that worked, you know, well, obviously it can still work better. We still have work to do, but I think overall it was fairly well done. Becky, did you have some more on that? No, I'd like to jump back to my comments on OSHA and then Dan and, and Kyle have put additional updates in and I may be, I may be incorrect that well, OSHA does not require it. FEMA and ICC does. So Dan or Kyle? Dan Z? Right, so, oh, go ahead, Kyle. So from Kyle's perspective, right, um, there is lots of good guidance that exists, right, but it's not a, a one-size-fits-all uh, when it comes to, right, what what should or should not be required, right? It's 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 all very relative. And also, it's, it's operating within reality, right? You, you think about after, you, you know, the large, very high profile tornado outbreaks that that we've had and and with very high death tolls in the past right and how long right it can take to not only plan but also then secure funding for and construct these safe rooms and shelters and things and right it's it's not a not a small expense yes there's funding available for it grants and things of that nature but from you know the, the large you know say big box store or large facility down to the individual homeowner right it's really kind of taking into account right what's your risk is this a worthwhile investment and you know if if not perhaps thinking you know do i have another you know, safe area right either in in or near my place of residence my place of work or you know if there's one within there is there a neighbor that i could go to that perhaps has a storm shelter or a safer uh, sheltering option but uh, the the one thing that i i do want to hit on here um is that, and this is something that that I was humbled to learn, uh, teaching on be, teaching tornado awareness on behalf of FEMA, is really uh, honing in on l placing labels on things, right? Because if you're calling something a shelter, then that's hinting, right, that it conforms to the guidelines uh, that that are established within industry for. Uh, design and construction of storm shelters, right? That's published. It's regularly updated. I think the last one was in 2020. Otherwise, it's an area of refuge, right? And so there's uh, several stories. Uh, one that I, I remember very vividly uh, being shared was that there was a uh, an airport that had labeled uh, many areas, uh, the restrooms mostly, as tornado shelters. And when they realized they didn't meet those guidelines, they had to go and change all their labeling to area of refuge because, right, if someone were to seek shelter there, there was an injury, they got sued, they could say, well, you call this a shelter, but it didn't conform to these guidelines. So it gets that granular, and it's something to consider as you're developing your weather safety plans and identifying those areas. Oh, my semantics. Dan Z, what do you Couldn't think? have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about language and, and, and you know, fault making. Making sure that, yeah, like, like, uh, like, like Dan said, of following the code that is, you know, fits within your your risk management plan, and you know, in places like the 
those large structures of Amazon warehouses and things of, yeah, those take decades to to plan and, and execute the the building of them that they're very costly and uh, yeah, some, sometimes it's just not worth it for those people building it to uh, have you know, large enough uh, shelter, uh, official shelter designated spaces. And, and even if you do, gets back to uh, a lot of what you guys talk about is that, that emergency plan, uh, that action plan of, you know, do the workers know where they're supposed to go? Are they trained on it regularly? Um, you know, and uh, at this point, I'm, I'm not sure if uh, if we really know how that uh, was on the ground. At least, at least I don't. Probably somebody does. Of um, what the the workers in the Amazon warehouse were trained to do in the event of a tornado. And even so, I mean, I've been in factory environments before where you know a lot of that stuff was just kind of have a song and dance and it was a well, all right i guess we're gonna do a tornado drill and you forget about it the next day um and so uh it, it really gets down to even even with the best of intentions even with the best of building codes and, and best of following it it comes down to people and their and their decisions and and what they remember on a friday afternoon when they're tired and just want to go home and it's the tornado drill for the for the year and they don't really remember it when the the what to do when the, the time is, is critical. So, um, and that may have been the case. Yes, then they find out they have no home, unfortunately. Um, so Dan, is, is OSHA now, what they're doing out there now, is it looking at those things and looking at uh, whether safety rules were followed to the extent that they can and that kind of thing? Yeah, I'm. I would. I would bet that uh, you know any any government organization that's out there, whether it's OSHA, FEMA, uh, will be looking at things like that for sure. Kyle, you just made an interesting comment. You want to share that? Sure, Sam. Uh, so in a previous life, uh, when I was uh, working uh, in servicing industrial heating and cooling equipment uh, around the Midwest. Right. A lot of the times before you can go on the plant floor, uh, even if you are escorted, you must watch the uh, required safety video. And right, it, it talks about a lot of the, the things that you would right, typically expect, you know, don't get speared by a forklift, look both ways, so on and so forth. Right. But not a single one of those I can recall mentioning anything about weather safety. So that was just something that kind of stuck out to me thinking back to those days. Why? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um, getting back to Joe, were you guys able to find any void spaces in that mess of the candle factory? Or was it just a solid bunch of metal? <laughs> no, it, uh, there there were definitely void spaces uh, there. You know, it was mostly, uh, it appeared at least to me to be a, you know, a, a slab construction with a, a, a metal building, but it did have uh some spaces inside that uh although i didn't uh personally get into them uh did seem to be you know at least more heavily constructed they 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 resembled uh more of a a, a space than they did a, a pile of rubble so uh, it appeared that there were some spaces in there at least to me that had um uh, more uh, reinforcements, for lack of a better word. In other words, they, they at least seem to structurally tolerate the destruction better than the other parts of the building. 
which makes you wonder if that was their escape place, um, <laughs> whatever they want to call it. Because now you you exactly. wonder. Yeah. You, you can't tell when it's looking like it's looking now, but you know, you have to wonder. Um, so what what's the next rest of the week look like for you, Joe? What what do you think you might be able to accomplish, in, you know, till the end of the week when you might be released? Yeah, I mean, you know, at this point we are uh, continuing to assist uh, locals and state officials in uh, closing the loop, if you will, on uh, unaccounted for folks uh, and uh, sort of specific areas of search that are um, uh, difficult to access or require uh you know, certified dogs and that kind of stuff. You know, some of the things that sort of fall in our wheelhouse that might be beyond uh, local capabilities. So uh, we're we're kind of down to uh, the the final stamping out the last few difficult fires. I guess at this point, maybe a good way to say that. Figuratively, not literally. I hope. <laughs> Well, we went long on this episode because not only did we have a stellar group to discuss this, these issues, but it was just a topic that needed to be talked about. And that's one of the reasons we brought Dan Z back, because he deals with buildings that fall down. So uh, that's important. But I think we need to wrap it up, unfortunately. Uh, so we'll go with final thoughts. Becky? Well, I wasn't expecting to be first here. I, whew, I, I just I think it's important to stress how key it is to have not just a plan and a way to receive warnings, but to know that you're going to be safe when you carry out that plan. So going back to everything that Dan Z talked about, making sure that that structure has you know been been fortified and and rated to withstand whatever the winds are going to be, not all shelters are created equal. So have a way to receive those warnings, make sure you know what your plan is and make sure that your safe place is, is truly adequate and can fit the number of people that are on site. Oh, good stuff, Becky. And for your edification, I just go down the row of pictures and you happen to be first. <laughs> uh, Dan, the weatherman. Yeah, I guess my thoughts are sort of with the meteorologists who are either surveying the damage here, which is uh, no easy task. Obviously, Joe knows about this from the work he's doing down there in Kentucky right now. And we have a lot of the National Weather Service meteorologists who are surveying the damage and seeing things that a lot of meteorologists never think they're going to have to see in this profession. But unfortunately, that's part of our, our jobs and it can be very challenging. So I, I think about them and, and, the peop and, and the meteorologists who issued the warnings, um, who in many, you know, in most cases did a great job providing lead time, but, um, there was obviously still outcomes that were not desirable. Um, and that's really challenging too, for, for people. So I keep all of them in my thoughts to the, you know, now. So. Yes. I, you know, we haven't talked about that much, but I can only imagine what it's like for those folks who are giving the weather and and seeing what's going on, especially if they're anywhere close to it. Um, Becky made a good point about um, the CISM piece of this, and that certainly would 
hold not only for the folks involved, the first responders, also the meteorologists. So I think we're going to link to that episode because it certainly fits right in, especially as this thing winds down. Mr. Kyle. Well, Sam, I think much like in the multiple severe weather outbreaks we had in 2011, we as a weather community, as a public safety community, as a research community, we were again humbled by what weather is capable of. Out of this, I am excited to see the initiatives, the learning, and the research that will come to prevent things like this from happening again in future. That's right. You can't stop the tornadoes, but you can certainly prepare better to keep people safe. Dr. Joe? Uh, I think for me is, uh, you know, thinking tonight and, and listening to all these incredibly talented and uh, learned people that we've had on tonight uh, about the amount of energy, time, and expense put into warning systems uh, and and the concern, at least for me, that some folks don't take those warnings seriously and uh, do not respond as aggressively as they should uh, when those warnings occur. Uh, and, and that, you know, that's kind of the final synaptic gap uh, in our system that is probably one of the most difficult to overcome is, is how do we put together warnings that people take seriously and respond to uh, and don't ignore. And after this storm, I'm sure that they'll be paying a little bit more attention, just like the folks in uh, New Orleans did after Katrina, because they didn't think it could happen. Dan Z. Yeah, it's just a, a reminder about um, how important it is for all of all of the work that uh, my colleagues do out in the field and uh, how sometimes it gets maybe overlooked or unappreciated uh, in the public of, oh, why are these scientists and engineers out here? And, you know, they're just getting in the way. But, um, you know, it's 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 folks like that that are doing the long term, really hard uh, work of, of making society as a whole uh, change. And it, it takes it takes decades sometimes. Um, and I just really appreciate uh, those who have the uh, uh, the passion and the desire um, to to really stick with it for the, the amount of time and uh, and mental energy it takes to to make that change. Well, and I'm glad that our little show can can talk about those folks and what they do, so the public has a better understanding of their importance. Because you're right, they probably have no clue what all these scientists and engineers are doing out there. But you know, it's looking at our safety for the future, right, Jamie? Absolutely. And, and you know, the big picture um, is something that we, we try to focus on here in the Disaster Podcast um, to, to kind of give everybody a, a better understanding of how all of the pieces fit together. And I think that's something that Joe and the team at Paragon do a good job of when they do their training and evolutions is, is bringing those pieces together in a way that, that shows the, the uh, people in the, cl- in the programs 
uh, exactly how they fit into the big picture. Um, and that's something you could do a good job of, Joe. Um, where can folks find out more about Paragon and what you guys are doing if they want to um, find out uh, how to get in touch with you? Well, well, thank you, Jamie. Uh, you know, we, we certainly use our work on uh, uh, events like this one to uh, learn best practices and most current issues. So we try to incorporate that into learning. Uh, we certainly enjoy talking with people to put together an educational experience that will suit their needs. Uh, they can find us at paragonmedicalgroup.com on the web, or obviously the um, um uh, Facebook at the, uh, under the same name or through the disaster podcast. Great. Thank you. And, um, Dan Z, where can folks find you, uh, and the design safe radio podcast? Yeah. Uh, you can find the podcast wherever your favorite podcasts are served up design safe radio. Um, and you can learn more about Neri at design safe ci.org. And if you want to learn more about steer, uh, which we mentioned earlier, what you, uh, if you want to get involved, uh, with with that, or look at their uh, report of their data that's going to be coming out in the in the next few days. Here, it's uh, steer s t e e r dot network. Awesome, thank you, um, Kyle. Where can folks find you? Well, Jamie, folks can find me on all the major social media platforms under the handle wx kyle nelson, and in the disaster podcast Facebook group. I'd love to connect with our listeners and continue our conversation. Becky, how about you? Find me over on Twitter at WX underscore Bex and the Disaster Podcast Facebook group. Excellent. And uh, Mr. DePodwin, sir, where can we find you? Uh, on Twitter at WX Depot, D-E-P-O, and the Disaster Podcast Facebook group. Excellent. And last but not least, Sam Bradley, the esteemed co-host of the Disaster Podcast. Where can folks connect with what you're up to? In all the places just mentioned under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11. What about you, Jamie? Well, folks can find me under the handle Podmedic in most social media locations, so I hope they'll connect with me there. Um, you can also always find us over at disasterpodcast.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the show on the links right there below the audio player on that page. So uh, go ahead and check that out. And um, we just want to thank everybody for coming together for this special episode this week um, to kind of go over and look at the events that happened over last weekend and um, are still being resolved as we discuss this. So um, we hope you'll continue to follow up. I'll have links to a lot of the stuff we talked about in the show notes for this episode over at disasterpodcast.com. Sam, thanks for pulling this together tonight. This is such an amazing group. Um, The expertise among them, even the three meteorologists all have their areas of specialty that they've enlightened us with. And of course, Dan Z, there's just not, not another one like him in the world. But I think the point made tonight, which is important, is even though a bad thing happened, a lot will come out in terms of after action reports and, and what they've learned about the structures. So there will be a a light at the end of the tunnel it isn't a freight train so we look forward to what that's going to be 